Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Comics Fondle podcast. My name is Andrew, and my blog is comicsfondle.com. And I'm Vernon, and I'm the proud proprietor of the Comics Gallery, a fine retail establishment in Wilmette, Illinois. And this is our August 2017 episode. We've been going monthly lately, so, you know, we can just give it a date, you know? There you I was going to say, yeah, one, one a month seems to be about all the comic books that the public publishers are coming up with that we want to read. So I you- know, I know. We've been talking about doing some... Uh, some back issue type stuff, but we haven't put that together yet. We'll let you know how that comes along. Yeah, you Bert and I can get on board with the same old stuff. Yeah, that, that's it. We we like try to squeeze. We're, we're trying to squeeze it down a little bit. You know, we don't want to go do these hour and a half, two hour podcasts to to make your ears bleed. So perhaps it's a good idea just to have a finite amount of t- titles anyway to work from. But uh, well, good for us. Maybe not good for. And now for the readers. readers. Yeah. <laughs> not to mention the retailers. Yes, the retailers certainly could use more money than that. Speaking of which, it's uh it, it it's uh it's it's fun times at Marvel again as they play their Ponzi schemes with uh all the the crap they managed to sell us that it is not comics. Like the the quality of the comics is is so sad that they can't get new readers on. They can't uh come up with any new characters or ideas that are sticking and their numbers are suffering. And then in October, in the new previews, they talk about uh, the relaunch. uh, What was it called? Uh, Legacy, I think it is. Generations. Generations. And then they go back to legacy numbering. Like, why the fuck would you want to go back to, like, Iron Man 627 or something like that? I'm like, it's it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I go, I really don't want to start books with 627. And they're really not starts. As fellow retailer Brian Hibbs pointed out in his column, they're, it's the same creative teams. They're not shuffling them around at all. And it, it, it's like, well, what's the point of this? If everybody's going to write the same fucking books they were earlier, then what, what does this mean? This isn't a relaunch in the technical sense of the word. But they managed to give us like uh, glow-in-the-dark cosmic cubes to hand out to customers. And, you know, they got this lenticular cover Ponzi scheme, like when DC did lenticular covers, it was a choice between the regular cover and the extra dollar for, or the regular, an extra buck for the lenticular cover. But Marvel now, to give an example of how they're going to be doling their lenticular covers out, is that say, we'll take Iron Man and make, keep it simple. Say as a shop, you order 10 copies of Iron Man. Well, to get to the threshold to be able to even order lenticular covers of that issue, you have to order something like 150% of your normal numbers just to qualify to begin ordering the lenticular covers. So this puts a retailer of small size in a deficit at the point because he's got 50% extra of Iron Man stock that he doesn't really going to sell. And then he can qualify to order as many lenticulars as he wants. So that means that a retailer, in order to get his money back and earn a profit, is going to have to charge an enormous amount of money for these lenticular covers, okay? Maybe five to ten times worth, I'm just guessing off the top of my head, of the three ninety nine price, okay? So what they're really selling you is not a comic. It's an object. And I think that's my biggest problem. We're going back to that system of where they're selling us objects to collect instead of comic books to read, and the response so far has been pretty tepid to the point where they're starting to lower the thresholds 
But I'm like, you know, just let me order the fucking covers in replacement of the regular covers. I mean, I don't want the regular covers if you're offering <laughs> I'll pay an extra dollar for those. I don't care. I just don't want to order 150 fucking percent of my normal numbers just to qualify, you know? This is going to put some poor, sad retailers in the hole trying to figure this out. And me being the uncapitalist pig that I am, I'm thinking about just forgetting it entirely. I've already put a sign up on my shop that says, here, here, here it is. Here's the lenticular covers. Just don't expect them here. And when you go to other <laughs> shops, expect to pay a buck and a half. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It, it just it, it's annoying that they can't seem to get their hands around the concept of how they're going to increase sales other than to make these things as collectible objects as opposed to things that you might actually sit and enjoy reading. So we're back at square one again. And uh, Marvel, I'm just kind of worried about. They know how to sell issue ones quite well. But after that, you're looking at sometimes as much as 50% drop-offs between one and two. So that's that whole thing. Well, we're selling objects, but how many of you people are going to come back for two? And Marvel's numbers... And I've said this before, and I'll use Brian Hibbs as an example. Now, he says there was a time when he was in there when Marvel would cancel a title if it fell below 100000 in sales. Now, I'm, I've been in the business 22 years, and I remember 50,000 copies being the threshold. If a comic fell down to 50,000 copies, it was pretty much looked at as, as a point of cancellation, unless, you know, Alex Ross were doing the covers or something. I don't know. But now Marvel frequently publishes – in fact, all of their – Superhero titles are selling under 50,000, and they publish comics nowadays that are as low as nine to 12,000 copies per issue. Okay, that's that's down there with DC numbers. Okay, that is, I was that just is. thinking that, <clears throat> and uh, I'm just kind of concerned that they just don't know how to command the ship or where to go with it, you know. And it just lends more credence to my argument that independent comics are doing so much better comics. I mean, they really are now. They're out doing mainstream comics better than Marvel and DC are now. And it's it's quite alarming. And, uh, well, let's just say it's in the back of my head every waking moment these days, you know? So um, when you were saying that they can't create any new characters, I wonder, they're not creating any new X-Men because Fox gets those. Right. And I'm wondering if they're not creating many new Spider-Man characters because it might be that Sony gets those. I mean, they, they do have their Spider-Man homecoming, et cetera, arrangement with Sony. But Marvel Studios didn't make any money off of that, supposedly. You know, that's what I heard, too. I said, you know, they, they, they eschew profits in order to be able to use the character. So there's got to be something in it for Disney. Do they... If they do so many films or so much time, do they well, get control of the character? What, what is Disney's What is Disney's um, reason to do Spider-Man films if they're not making money? Now, supposedly, according to the press uh, tour for Spider-Man Homecoming, Spider-Man will be launching Phase 3. Spider-Man Homecoming 2 will launch Phase 3, and oh, he okay. will be the center of the Marvel Universe. Really? Well, so, you know what? Tom Holland's only 21, 22. He's not, you know, 55 like Tony Stark or whatever the hell Robert Downey Jr. is. Yeah. So. I'm just, it's curious as to why they're doing it. I, I mean, I know they want Spider-Man. They must have some kind of dark arcane uh, contract with Sony that gives them some impetus. Because, well, money is key. But if you're not making money, there's got to be something else on the board. Disney doesn't do nothing for nothing. You know. Well, now, I think that Disney gets to 
They do they retain all the marketing profits? Oh, merchandising from yeah. the movies. So if there's merchandising from, well, that could add up to a pretty good penny. That, yeah, I that mean could, that could easily outshell the profits on Spider Man. I mean, it didn't last really long in the the battle for number one as far no. as summer films. You know, I think Wonder Woman spanked its ass just like everything else. Yeah, yeah, which is based upon arguments we've already gone over. I, I got a kick out of how there were some, uh, I, I don't know, hopeful or hopeless people who are suggesting that Wonder Woman might win some type of award or something. And oh, I'm like, yeah. I like, uh, award for I what? Hottest too. female in a short outfit? I, I don't get it, you know. Um, well, it's interesting, and we're, we don't have a media segment on here because it's pre-Defenders, so we're sort of just in the lull until uh, the fall starts, but um, the new supposedly final Justice League trailer came out at San Diego, and if you have you seen it yet? I believe I have, yes. The yes. one that opens with Wonder Woman in the bank? Yes, yes. Yes. I don't believe for one second that Zack Snyder directed that. I think that after Wonder Woman was a hit, they threw Joss Whedon. They gave him a bunch of money to do that scene because Zack Snyder, I don't know that I believe that he understood how key she was going to be in popularity. Okay. So not only was it Josh's um, mission to clean up the film, but also to insert Wonder Woman in it more prominently to than she was before. Yeah. Well, everybody, everybody wants to see Wonder Woman, and uh, well, I, I must admit I've been really slack. I haven't seen any of the superhero films this year yet, so I'm, you know, I'll get around to it. But I'm not, I'm not excited. Like I was telling you last time, I said, you know, see, Wonder Woman comes out, and then J- JLA's in November. But that Black Panther trailer is is it looks great, and I, uh, I says it makes you forget everything DC did just with a stupid trailer. I hear there's another one out and I'm like, okay, wow, they got, they got a black character that even white people want to see now. I mean, that's going to be the success there. So, okay. Uh, Well, anyway, Marvel, Marvel will really have to figure out how to publish comic books because their numbers will continue to go down and that's not good for retailers and it's not good for the industry. So hopefully Axel Alonso will uh, quit, Quit getting off his duff, and or they'll replace him. I don't know. Whatever the solution is, they haven't it, had it, a change up. Nobody's had a big change up in years. No, I mean, what do you get? You still got Dan Slott writing Spider Man for Christ's sake. You got Bendis writing uh, Iron Man, and, and and Jessica Jones, and all that shit. It's almost like a good old boys network where everybody's friends and they get to do what they want, you know. And what they really need is some corporate guy to go in there and shake up the cage a bit. It seems like. And you, know? you think Disney would have the best market research in the industry? Yet apparently not. No, apparently not. I'm not seeing it. Well, you know, again, it's it's everything you've said before. The movies succeed. That's all that really matters. And uh, may the uh, intellectual cop- intellectual property of comic books be damned. Uh, we'll find some gems to read, but it's it's been a struggle to make the rent here, kids, and they've got to get their shit together. I tell you, otherwise, I I got to go work at Amazon or something. Actually, right. Comicsology is hiring, except it's only for a web design thing. I was oh, looking wonderful. at that. Wonderful, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nothing good. I'm like, can't they? They need to do their own comics. Get some editors in there. You know, we should do. Yeah, yeah. I don't care if it is directed digital. We need, you know, they're, DC and Marvel have this gracious hole, this void that needs to be filled. 
And the other companies have an opportunity. I don't know if they've got the hutzpah talent and money to fill it, but uh, some are trying. Valiant is certainly trying. I, I can't say I've ever really – at the end of the day, the Valiant stuff, which is certainly better mainstream than Marvel or DC, and at least the characters are more unfamiliar, which makes it newer, you know? Mm. And they do have a lot of good writers and artists. And, my God, they picked up Jeff Lemire. I mean, this guy writes for everybody and their mother these days. I'm surprised he's not writing for Ladies Home Journal. But – uh you know, I don't know. I just, I, I'm not seeing it. I'm trying, but. Uh, eh, eh, eh. Okay, one hey. question before sure. we get to the comics. What the hell is DC Metal? Uh, DC Metal is their big end of summer crossover utilizing Batman, and I think they're utilizing uh, a common thread of metal in the origins of some of their comics. Uh, nth metal and and the story revolves around Batman's got like another hidden secret in one of his bat caves about uh, you know well we're done okay I don't care let's go to the yeah comments. I was just gonna right. say I don't no, care I don't care, I don't I'm care. Getting, my eyes are getting glazed and I'm the dude doing the talking so yeah yeah <sighs> we're there all right yeah they're coherent they had two one shots they're readable the good artwork probably the best product they're putting out right now this to make superhero fans happy all right. But anyway, some fucking comics. Did you some get a chance to read that, that Supergirl? Uh... Being super number four, yeah. So, <sighs> what do you well, think? It, it, well, you know, it's kind of funny because these were four prestige comics, and while they're an interesting coming of life teenage story for a girl, they're not particularly super. You no, know, and I mean, I'm not sure that's what it's about, but. I'm the not last sure what one, I, want to read. I mean, what was was it the second one that was just sort of like, ugh, this kind of is not good. Like, I'm sorry about this script. Um, it like the first one had a lot of momentum, you know. Yeah. Like this was a, you know, Supergirl's on TV. Um, right. She's very popular on TV, and here was like the first. It's a continuity-free sort of Elseworldsy Supergirl thing. Right. And, you know, it got a lot of momentum out of, you know, Kara being a teenager with all these friends. And it was like very grounded, realistic character relationships. And then the second one, you know, all the momentum just got sapped out of it. Um, And then the third one was a bit of a comeback. And I mean, the fourth one's... All right, but yeah, it, bring, it brings in Lex Luthor as the bad guy, but it's not really anywhere we haven't been already. That's you know? what my problem with it was. Is I'm like, so you get to the end of it, and it's just like, oh, this is exactly this is any other Supergirl origin. Right. Like, there's nothing different about this anymore. Like, well, it's ex- and, and the thing is, they start out, and I know Julian Tamaki was trying to do a coming of age story, which if it stuck to that, yeah, it might have succeeded more. But turning it into a standard Supergirl. Leaves, uh, I don't know, it's, not, it's Middale, Middale, and her she's got a triumph of three, her three friends and her, one meets an unfortunate end, which kind of upsets the dramatic balance, but then she eventually has to leave uh, Midvale behind, and her one friend gets a girlfriend to keep her busy at the end. I was like, oh, well, what happened to her? Is she going to be the only one left behind? That's going to suck her. Her Midvale experience has got to be not as bad as death the other one went through. But she's left behind. Yeah. And yet they give her a lesbian girlfriend at the end to 
to make it better for her so she can survive. I think I was more interested in her story at the end and finding out what happened to her because she had the more interesting childhood and right. adulthood has got to be damn dull after that for her. You know what I mean? I, I didn't quite get it. It was a, a mixed bag. I can't blame Joelle Jones. She had some nice artwork. She it did. Was perfect. She had some really but, nice artwork in there. Yeah. And um, if you're a Supergirl fan, you might find it. Uh, I don't know if I'd pay full six bucks a hit for those things. No, that's I think I'd wait. Until there's a trade and I'd get it from a library and yeah, not or go, hope go to for a too con much. And get it on bargain bin or something. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that they didn't capitalize on that better. Like, yeah, if someone had sent this to an editor, I'd say, well, you know, we gotta juice it up a little bit or something to make it worth twenty five dollars to read. Right, exactly. When you think of it like that, mm-hmm. like I mean, if they'd even done it as an eight issue series and plotted it a little bit better for that maybe that would have been better for it i don't know it's, yeah. it's a weird uh eh, you know I, I will say it's much better than the regular supergirl comic because it focuses on an issue and it has a finite story to tell and it doesn't have to do a continued adventure where you have to keep up in the ante every issue so meh is all right meh, meh, it gets a meh grade i meh. guess for meh so if you're supergirl fan to read it but meh for the rest of us i guess yeah. i don't know God uh, Shaper, what's that? Sorry. No, I was going to say, speaking of meh, God Shaper 4. You know, that was an interesting issue. Uh, he, he's obviously trying to make a point like, um, God, who, who is our author on this again? Simon Spurrier. Simon Spurrier really tries to do a lot of interesting things with new ideas. I mean, the man just doesn't sit still. And he tries to do – You here's a person who sits around and thinks about stories for a while before he commits pen to paper. He's not as prolific as Bendis. But then again, he doesn't do as much work as Bendis. Uh, but I, I don't know if I had as much of a problem with it. It was a slower issue, and it might have seemed a bit preachy because it was definitely talking about the prejudicial attitudes towards minorities and people of alternative persuasions. Uh, but I'm not sure that it was convincingly done enough for me to – feel that it advanced the story particularly well. That was you know? sort of, it, it sort of seemed like an aside. It seemed like almost a, um, <clears throat> the old, the old Brubaker slowdown issue, you know, like it well, all yeah, took place. It had like one scene, basically it had one setting, basically it, it resolved the cliffhanger really quick. Right. Didn't give the artist much to do. Yeah. And it's just weird coming from Spurrier because, I mean... He usually has a lot of activity in his books. <sighs> they, they they go from point A to point B in every issue, and it adds up to something as a whole. Yeah. But God, God Shaper was a, a bit of a, a a bit neutral, you know? It doesn't mean that it's not a good comic. It just it means that it lost a bit momentum focusing on one character and his attitude about life and stuff, where it was kind of more of a uh, quest type of thing. Yeah. And so... But how many issues is this? I going think to it's five? only five. Which I don't is, know how he's going to do it in five. I, I'm not I sure hope it's gonna, six. But I'm hoping too, yeah, because six will give him some room to breathe on that. You but, know? I mean, this is not this is not the density of something like um, Six Gun Gorilla or Heaven's, with Heaven's the Spire. The Betsy, the Spire was just so dense, you know, like. Oh, yeah. With characters alone, let alone plot. Yeah. Um, but God Shaper 4 is certainly worth your time. Uh, Jonas Goonface, man, what a name for an artist, boy. He must have been picked on as a kid. Yeah. Um, but he does a very credible job with some of uh, Spurrier's kind of new wave visuals and stuff. And he's a perfect artist for it. Spurrier seems to, like, team himself up with 
really good artists who are sympathetic for his material. Yeah. And God Taper 4, we're not perfect. We'll get you by. And hopefully he comes to a good conclusion on this. Series. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping, too. Because, I mean, the second one, I think, was the one that was just outstanding, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you bring in the characters and he's running around doing these odd jobs, being hypocritical and stuff like that. Yeah, but God Shaper's still a pretty good comics. But, yeah. yeah oh, like, yeah, it's still a pretty it. good book, yeah. Yeah. I um, so now, did we talk about Kill the Minotaur 1? We may episode? have. I think we might have last month, yeah. Yeah, and so... Came out Two came out. Um, so it's uh, it's kind of like Alien in the Labyrinth with magical labyrinth stuff and a very scary Minotaur and people getting grabbed up and killed and things like that. Um, is this art's still be, good? You know, is this based on the mythological story of the Minotaur? I don't it, know. It is sort of, but if you read the back matter, the the authors are. The writers are talking about how, you know, they want to do it as a horror movie. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it, it's got that aspect to it, but I'm just like, I feel like it's losing. It's not losing me, but it's losing some of its potential, I would say. Like, it's just going for this horror angle now, as opposed to last issue had this character, you know, his development, things like that. And this issue, now it's just, you know, 12 little Indians or the Agatha Christie, 10 little Indians. You yeah, know, 10 like, little Indians. Yeah, we're down losing by one. this person, we're losing that person in these interesting ways that reveal things about the labyrinth. And, you know, I mean, it's fine, but, you know, I yeah. feel like it started stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got to bring a little bit more to the table to keep up the momentum that number one did. I mean, it might, I, I don't want to say it, but it seems too with... Um, Lucas Kettner's art, who's one of my favorite indie guys for that great book, Witch Doctor. Uh, it seems like that first issue was the pitch. And then it was like, okay, here we go. Now we got to do it. So now two comes out and it's kind of a diluted one, you know, right. and Kettner's art is definitely not quite on the same league as it was in one, whether that's deadlines, you know, and, and you have to get them out. That's another thing. The problem with, with indie comics, I'll forgive less than perfect art as long as it stays on schedule. You know right. what I mean? That's the thing. That can always be corrected in a trade edition later or something like that. So, again, that one gets an okay. You know, not perfect, not bad, but certainly not living up to the potential of the first issue so far. We, we promise, folks, there are some things we're going to rave about at some point in this podcast, I promise. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we're pretty picky, though. You know, like, we're not revealing, we're not we're not reading Superman or the Avengers here, so these books go through a higher state of scrutiny than than, than Spider-Man would by Dan Slott on any given day or something like that, you know? Yeah. Redneck 4, uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know? Well, it, it certainly was interesting. We don't know how far it keeps momentum of the plot. And it's a bit of a sidetrack issue into the history of the the two of the major characters in the family of vampires in Texas and stuff like that. Uh, it does take away a bit of the momentum because now you're kind of telling a different story than you were yeah, in the first even, three. At the end of three, they sort of promise this great Western vampire adventure, like Old West gunfighter Western vampire adventure. We don't get that, you know? No. And... Now, is this an ongoing or a limited series? You know, Donnie Gates, uh, he he seems to have, like, limited series. So I I suspect that this is going to have a a resolution. That's how it feels. 
because the family members are not all going to last. Yeah, I just... It just seems like... Remember how a Vertigo ongoing back in the olden days, they do their opening hook uh, arc? I'm thinking about... um, Scalped did it. Um, the the crap. The unwritten did it. I was gonna say unwritten. Yeah, you do your hook arc where you get right. everybody on board, and then you do these issues where you know you the flights of fancy issues. And this one, I, I can tell that they don't want it to be a flight of fancy issue, but it is. I mean, this is right. a flight of fancy issue. Like we don't. This issue, the important material is in four pages. At most, you right. know, the, and we don't the, even know what the important material is. Like, right. It's, it's still a, a mystery. Yeah. 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 It's still a mystery. And while I, I certainly like the family of vampires, uh, I'm not necessarily sure that this backstory is going to relieve much to me. But, you know, again, I, I'm starting to have patience because, <laughs> you know, like all the other comics suck and these are pretty good. You know, I mean, I can read, <laughs> I can read Redneck and enjoy it. I might be a little good disappointed. Point. That the, the thing didn't go, but I'm still and and um, Donny Gates, Gates or Gates, Gates, I uh, got signed to a uh, fucking contract at Marvel. I saw that. I'm like, oh, I, I you know, and I, on one hand, I'm torn between the uh, congratulating a creative individual for getting a regular check. I'm really cool about that. I'm less, I'm less excited about him working for Marvel, like doing generic superheroes. So I understand you got to make a check, but I hope to God that he gets to do other shit on the side. Yeah. You know, like I, I really think that's important to legitimize himself as a good comics writer. Let's put it that way. He can do it. He's got potential. We see a lot of potential. I saw, I saw potential with God country, even though it seemed like something he could crank off in an afternoon, you know? Um, but in redneck, he's got more textured layers to work with. But it's not an ongoing series, or at least I don't think it's going to be. So, like you say, this 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 um, uh, whole place issue seems odd for a limited series. Yeah. You know? And I will compliment Lissandro Estherin's artwork. Uh, he keeps it simple, but he keeps it excited. It's a very expressionistic style. It doesn't like have anything to do with reality. It's a very unusual, but he's good, and he keeps yeah. it going. You know, he's a very solid storyteller. So. I, I like Redneck. I'm still on board. Uh, you know, sometimes you can't have everything perfect, but as long as you get a seven or eight out of ten, I'm fine with that. You know. Okay, now something. Now something we can brag about anyway. Get Black Hammer Eleven. So this is definitely a transition issue. Yes. I mean, it's definitely you know sort of a relaxed. We're we're revealing some things. We're moving plots forward slowly. Uh, Lemire does a couple sort of flashbacks. He does, well, no, he only really does one. It's only uh, uh, Barbalian getting the flashback, right? Right, and his life being repeated again. by And his life being repeated again. And I mean, so Black Hammer is Dark Horse, right? Yes. But I mean, I don't know that I've ever read... A comic from Dark Horse, DC, or Marvel that deals with the problems a gay guy is going to have, like this one does. It, it this book would have would have fit in nicely at Vertigo. We're finding all these books that yeah, if, if Vertigo as a label exists anymore, it doesn't. So we're finding all these these cool pitches of 
alternative superhero stories, you know, and, and Jeff Lemire is certainly capable of telling them. I mean, I'm utterly fascinated. I mean, you don't really have a lot of depth and these characters are, are built on stereotypical superhero cloth as it were. And, uh, it's, it's what he makes. Okay. You could say, okay, well, there's nothing new about meat and vegetables, but it's how you cut them up and make them in a right. stew that makes the thing. Exactly. And, it's how you and, season the stew. Right. And, you know, I hope be able to keep this going. I don't think he can keep this going as an ongoing. I can't see him being able to get more than 24 issues out of this particular mystery. And even well, that. Yeah. It's called Black Hammer. And he's the, he's still the haven't met Black Hammer. And he's, he's still dead. He starts out dead and he's still dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with that. But I think he's doing some side series with it and stuff like that or something, right? Uh, yeah, David Rubin, I think, gets That's right, David on. Rubin. I posted that to the Facebook page, hoping you would see it because you are such a Rubenite. I am such an art wank, and I will read David Rubin's Dr. Seuss tales if he decides to illustrate them, you know? I was going to um, say, wait, is he going to do uh, Dr. Strange? Is that what you're going to read, Ver? <laughs> Well, I don't know, but uh, Black Hammer is like a book that is strangely addictive. And uh, here at my weird little store, it is now outselling the combined sales of Avengers and Justice League. Now, now that in itself is really necessarily nothing to brag about considering the state of these books these days. But the fact that Black Hammer is a super team book outsells X-Men, uh, Justice League, Avengers at my store definitely makes it like I am I am pushing this thing to death. I I actually get my fat ass out from the counter and I put this thing in my customer's hands to re read superhero books. Uh, and I'm like, you listen, you only bought three DCs this week. Why don't you try Black Hammer? There okay. And it's been working and now it's uh, it's gaining numbers and it's not quite up to saga numbers, obviously, but uh, who cares? It's great read, you know? And, and uh, uh, what's the name of that artist, Dan? Dean Ormstrom. Ormstrom, I love his city. Like, I just want him to do the spiral city. It reminds me, <clears throat> it reminds me a little bit of Terminal City. Mm -hmm. The flashbacks, just the architecture of it and his detail with it. It's just this really great, um, you know, sort of the Batman, the animated series, Metropolis of the Superman Fleischer cartoons like he really goes for the architecture in this and it's just it's really cool to see um these days anyway I mean because oh, yeah. of, like I feel I don't read superhero books so I don't get to see a lot of you know I don't even know how the hell Marvel and DC are illustrating their cities anymore you know it's been 85. Well, that, that, that's, a, you, yeah. that's an odd choice of why you like the art because well, no, I, I, it's not why I like the art. It's it's something that I like about how Ormston does that art. The visuals, like, the yeah. visuals of those flashback scenes. He well, sort of well, creates this awesome little setting or big setting that we never get to spend too much time in. Yet it's still extremely distinctive and it's extremely active. Exactly. I mean, I, I would say that I would uh, balance it out with the scenes of the farm. Everything looks old. It looks like an old Kansas farm or something like that with withered boards. And the kitchens they sit in have pockmarks in the kitchen table and, and warped windows, you know, from being aged. And while Ormstrom is not what you'd call a technical artist, he is a very emotive, expressionistic yes. artist that knows when to stop. 
drawing expressionlessly and make sure that the right details are there enough to keep it honest and real. You know, yes. uh, you're fully ensconced in the atmosphere of Black Hammer. It, it, it is a complete universe. Yes. And now that Lucy Weber, who is Black Hammer's daughter, is stuck on the farm, too, uh, we get to see it through sort of fresh eyes. You know? Oh, yes. And she's the one. It's it's interesting that she is the one with enough uh, difference and objectivity to start pulling the threads together as mm. to what's going on here. You know, I mean, we got a taste of who might be behind it last issue. And we certainly get a taste of the conspiracy plot of this issue, you know, because we we know we know there's got to be a reason these people have been put there. But now we got to find out why and how and all that. And that's where Lemire will get his length out of this book. Right. You know, but Black Hammer is balls on. It's a fun comic and it's one of those you get easily addicted to. So be careful if you pick up the first trade on the rack because you'll be I swear to God, I keep reordering. You know, this book is so obscure. Nobody knows about it that it was only just till last week that one of the issues went out of print. <laughs> I shit you not, 11 issues plus an annual, and they were all available through Diamond Distributors until last week. So that tells you that not enough retailers are buying this book and not enough customers are reading this book. So I would highly suggest that if your retailer doesn't carry it, to go behind the counter and slap him around because he's really <laughs> missing out. There's easily a dozen books he could cancel to carry Black Hammer over. All right. Another odd one. Kaiju Max. Season three. Season three, issue one. Go right ahead. Oh, thanks a lot. You know he listens to our fucking podcast, right? We, hey, we love you, man. We but, love you, Xander. But what is an odd what is this? Yeah. Well, the, I, the, the, the pathos is there and the sympathy yeah. – and the beat up of an innocent character. He loves to beat up on innocent people. He does, but <laughs> it's like never sure. beating up on an all new innocent character. He's, no, he's got... been around. He's been picked on since the beginning. The yeah, but he's never boy. been the protagonist of these things. No, he's always been the the smallest of the of the monsters on Kaiju Max, and he occupies a different realm because all the rest of them are like man made from accidental nuclear things or man or or magical things this goat boy is a uh, extension of anti-christianity spells or whatever it is so it doesn't make him as big as the rest of them you know but it's very clunky in its execution of getting us to be sympathetic towards him and the payoff at the end that gives him purpose as being the focus of the story I'm not quite sure I buy it. You know what I mean? And the introduction of that odd the character, volcano. the volcano. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, and I... It wasn't that compelling, let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I mean especially after season two, I think, I don't know if I said it in the review or just uh, talking to you, but it really feels like um, The Wire, only it doesn't hook you. You know, like when you watch The Wire, they sort of hard booted this show every season. Yes. Because what's his face? Jimmy was always, you know, he was fucking fired every season because he's a drunk, right? Yeah, a drunk. <clears throat> so, you know, it's always about getting him, Dominique West, back into the into the fucking thing. 
yeah, this one ends and I'm just like, and I, I was kind of on board with the beginning. That was weird. You know, like you've yeah. got this evil volcano thing that causes um, people to, like regular people to do evil things. And there's this big intro to it. But then we go to Goat Boy. We bring back the human doctor who's in the abusive relationship with the uh, with the monster. And I'm yeah, just kind of yeah. like... That was never the strong part of season one, you know, and it's like right, and and the scenes where like the goat the goat boy gets picked on by like everybody, even his anthropomorphic type of fellow beasts, which mm-hmm. he thinks that he might find some shielding from, and it's been done. We've seen all these scenes already, and I hope you know. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pick on Xander Canyon at all. I like I'm I'm in there, but there's certainly a vacuum when you take Electrogor out of the scene, who's been our biggest protagonist. And was left pretty much with a hard-ass end to his story. I mean, it seemed to me that, 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 well, Electrogor is getting shat on a lot. Then he gets the super shat on when he finally finds his kids. And nothing is what it seems. And then he has to go through shit again. And I'm like, well, I'm sure he'll be back because he got caught again. You know, but all I can think of in this issue is where's Electrogor? (laughs) You know? I really the robot wanted... cops, you remember Mechagodzilla and his sister, you know? Yeah. So it's like... They were much more involving characters. Yeah. You know? And, and so I mean, it was... Go ahead. No, I mean, it's just like, th- that's what we sort of saw the first... The, the difference between the first season and the second season was, is the first season it was like always technically good, but the characters lacked a lot of depth. Yeah. Right? And in the second season, we finally got into a lot of depth with these characters while he was also doing these um, the sort of amazing quest through all the monster shit. You remember? Oh, the inclusion of the Rat Brothers was great. So, you know, yeah, it's just a weird sort of start to a third season. It just doesn't feel on. Yeah, it, it's a weird start. I think that I will, we'll, we'll call that, we'll put that one on pause and see how the second issue goes. But it's yeah. a very weird start for issue three. Again, still better than any mainstream comic yeah. has a right to be, so you're fine there. But a weird misfire from Xander Canyon. And Xander, don't get mad at you. We still love your book, and we're still going to read it religiously, okay? Uh, uh, Sabrina came out. Speaking of main characters that aren't in their own books. <laughs> but still great. Still I mean, great. I mean, you know what? Like, I, Sabrina... Sabrina has had, I feel like, seven great issues. Whereas Afterlife with Archie has a number of great issues. But not yeah. like this. No, like, the, the level is much different. Yeah, it's just so freaking good. and Horribly textured. I mean, it, <sighs> it has a lot of layers of depth with each character. They, it, it, Sarkoza, the, uh, Sarkoza, the writer, uh, really uh, digs into the motivations of each and every character in Sabrina. And this issue, we get treated to the story of her father, who does a hell of a lot of nasty things to become the head warlock of his clan. And this is Sabrina's dad. And then it goes back and forth with the modern story that we're going with poor Harvey, who he's reincarnated within the body of, you know, I mean, we, we felt, wow, well, Harvey, her, Sabrina's boyfriend really got the short shift, but now we find out that we just barely understood well, how, how, how fucked he really is. Yeah. You know I, mean? I mean, when Harvey goes and, uh, 
visits his parents. I mean, it's it's a rough scene. I mean, it's pretty bizarre shit. And Hack's art is just it's Hack, right? Not Hack. Yeah, Robert Hack. I think his name is. Is it Robert? Disgusting and beautiful as always. I mean, this book just incredibly ah. graceful in its depictions of gore and horror. Let's put it that way. It's it makes so it look natural. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. The witches, despite all of their horrible acts of depravity, still is compelling and beautiful and weird. You know what I mean? Sabrina is a unique comic, isn't it? It, it doesn't occupy. I, I can't say that I've ever seen. I mean, it takes certain tropes of horror, but. It does it in such a manner that makes it wholly unique and different than anything else out there today. You know, I don't and know. And there's another one coming out next month, this month. Holy shit. They Holy swear. <laughs> we go from one year between issues to one month. I don't know if my heart can stand the strength. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Sabrina, uh, another fucking great issue. There's like, there's no reason you should not be reading Sabrina. It's just too Is there too a trade good. out of the first six or anything? Yes, there is. Okay. There is. Yeah, yeah. And moving on, we got Sacred, Sacred Creatures. Creatures. You know, um, and that's another one of the mainstream books that or indie books that's better than mainstream. Yeah. Books. Well, because it's by a couple mainstream guys, you know, like who is it? It's um pa- Pablo Remiandi, Ramondi. Yep, guy who did X Factor with Peter David, beautiful yep. book. And, and uh, uh, who's the, the writer? The, he is the writer. Who's the other guy though that did, that came up with the concept with him? Oh, Klaus Jansen. Claus Jansen. Yeah. I mean, what is Claus Jansen? He's got to be in his 60s by now. And uh, I don't know. This this was I, – I, I can't say that there was anything especially new about Sacred Creatures except that its execution was utterly professional and perfect all mm-hmm. the way through, you know? This is like the – and I mean you're – the backgrounds, um, clearly they're not operating on a great budget because um, it's image, right? Uh, it's image, it's creator owned, but it's yeah. a huge a fucking book. It's got well, like, it's a huge book. The first one's enormous, yeah. yeah. Um, but their backgrounds are what appear to be um, photo, just drawn over, quickly drawn over photos, which really brings the characters forward. But they really want the New York setting, so it's 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 a very photorealistic background. Oh, you're right. It's very New York. You would yeah. never mistake this book as being anywhere but New Nowhere York. Nowhere else. And I mean, you know, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's. I mean, its execution is beautiful. I mean, the the two page spread of here with the uh-huh. the, the angel uh, is just breathtaking in its uh, simplicity, complexity, and dynamic effect all at once. And uh, I would never have guessed that a couple of artists, people who are known primarily as artists in mainstream comics, come up with such a, a total package like this. You know what I mean? Like I, I said, they've they're been working they're, on it for a while. I think they might say that in the back, but yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean but, is Ramondi working on anything else? Uh, I can't say he. Well, there's a lot of guys who used to be working at mainstream that don't anymore, and yeah. he's one of them. Yeah, at least nothing that is published that I've seen here in America, but uh, the whole, like I said, the concept of this, like, I'm going to call it um, the endless family. We don't really know, but they remind me of vertigo characters that have existed. I mean, it's, it's, what if a vampire book were actually angels or something, basically? Yeah. 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 Bad angels or corrupt angels or angels. I I don't know the whole plot, but 
but each one of them is kind of interesting and the relationship to one another is handled in a really nice balanced way for everybody gets the correct amount of screen time yep. and dialogue. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a good fantasy slash horror comic that strangely satisfies. And like I say, it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it just, it just it satisfies just, on a wholly professional yeah. level, you know, just spins really nicely. Probably the best five bucks you'll spend on a comic this month, you know. Sure, oh, yeah. it, I'm sure as hell it beats the fuck out of all these one shot generation comics. And <laughs> I'll tell you that. All right. All right. Anyway, here's here's a good one from one of our favorite authors, Jimmy's Bastards. Uh, we must have talked about number one last time, dude. Uh, I think we did. I think we did. Yeah. So the second one came out, and uh, so it's Garth Ennis and Russ Braun. Uh, frequent collaborators, so they always work well together. Russ Braun can handle the action, he can handle the humor. And I was not incredibly taken with the first one, because I didn't think Garth was going to be able to keep up the level of sort of irreverence, but also... It's fast-paced humor. It's fast-paced humor, it's on, you know, multi-level humor, you know. I love the scene in the bar where there's stuff going on in the foreground and background. Again... Not reinventing the wheel. It's called Jimmy's Bastards because it's about a James Bond-like um, spy. Uh, all of his illegitimate children teaming up to destroy him and the world. And so, there's a lot of them, yeah. And there's a lot of them. And so, I mean, it just it works out really nicely. And, yeah, the um, <clears throat> he's got this new partner, uh, female partner, who, who wants nothing to do with him. Um, and Ennis always going back to, I don't know, unknown soldier back in the nineties. He always has a great rapport between partners, you know, it's, um, and so he gets that in here again. It's just, you know, it's just this superior little book from, uh, Aftershock, this new company that's the only Aftershock book I read. Okay. (laughs) But luckily, they had Garth Ennis on the title. So, yeah. but you know, I'm I'm amazed at the balance he strikes between absolute absurdity yet convincingly uh, creating a plot that just keeps moving forward. Yeah. I mean, it takes timing to do good humor. It, to do humor is very hard to do, and it kind of reminds me of what what's those goofy ass movies from like the '70s Airport where. He just throws in tons of jokes, right? But he keeps it moving forward and keeps it in a direction. And you know what I found out about artist Russ Braun the other day? He spent seven years at Disney in animation. And that's why he's so good at facial expressions. Okay. And there's no problems recognizing one Russ Braun character from another. They're all incredibly distinctive. Even the bimbos that populate the background of Jimmy's life or have all individual features, even though they're all generic bimbos. And I was like, wow, you know, and and Russ Braun just gets expression. What was that, that, that goofy ass, uh, uh, eight issue series he did with dynamite that sold horrible. That was like that movie plot. It's a mad man. That wasn't him. That wasn't Russ Braun. Oh, that's right. He did the covers, but he didn't do the interiors. That's right. Yeah. Forgive me. But, uh, Jimmy's bastards, two issues, a lot of fun, lots of sex, violence, Idi Amin pops in for Edie a guest Amin star. pops up. I mean, it's, <laughs> what? you know, it's, um, <clears throat> Ennis seems to be at this point doing a lot better with shorter books. 
You can't go too short, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But as long as he's got four to eight issues, it works out. Four to nine. I bet he could go 12. But, like, when you get something like The Boys, where he does a comic for, like, what, six, seven years? Yeah. He just, you know, he gets to the point. When he's allowed to indulge himself, it, it gets lengthy. Yeah, you know, there's probably some stuff you could edit out. Uh, Dynamite is not uh, a, a, a comic book company that's going to edit anything. They're just going to say do more issues, which is probably right. the boys' biggest problem. Um, Jimmy's Bastards, though, just you're right. It, 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 it follows um, Garth Ennis is a very graceful writer, mm-hmm. and he's teamed up with an artist that can depict anything. I was reading a review of two, and one critic mentioned that there's just this fantastic scene where an assassination scene against Jimmy and his boss while they're playing golf, where they're getting attacked by a military helicopter. And it is all incredibly convincing and realistic, but yet there's so much absurdist humor about the whole scene. I think that was my review, by the way. Was that your review? Well, it might have been. I think it, it might have been. been. The wholly yeah. convincing helicopter assassination scene was just great in there. You know? And he Not did too many- the... Um... Russ Braun did the art on that dinosaur book last year he with that. Did right? War yeah. as hell, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. So I the mean, man, yeah, they just the man, they're in sync, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's a good way to say. When it. Ennis finds his partner or his uh, artist partners, and he, they're in sync, they are in sync. And... Uh, yeah, this is two uh, mature creators doing some really sweet work right now, you know. Yeah. And I, I look forward to the next issue. Oh yeah. Back. Yeah, that's that's how it works. As it, once Ennis proved that he could keep this up, I was like, "Let's just keep doing it then." Fine. Yeah. He, he's doing a uh, six-issue Punisher series I coming know. out from Marvel again. I, I I'm really curious as to whether. I mean, I'm sure they're going to let him go and do what he wants. Uh, at the same time, it's the Punisher. So, what more can you bring to the Punisher? You know, it's supposed to be his first tour of duty in Vietnam, so it's probably not going to be humorous, but. I don't know. Ennis seems capable of anything. I mean, what were we talking about last time around where he's got that uh, goofy Hanna-Barbera book, Sna- not Snagglepuss. Uh, fuck, what was it? Uh, I don't know. But he, he's doing one of the Hanna-Barbera tie-ins for DC because it fit into one of his plots. He probably went mm-hmm. home and said, oh, yeah, this this works well. I can graft this onto the, the Hanna-Barbera character. So I don't know. The man just seems to be able to write to his own strengths. He doesn't write the best-selling books, but it's hard to find a writer that's competent that he is that makes you satisfied issue after issue, even in certain ways, you know? Right. All right. Well, anyway, Jimmy's Bastard, the fun book, but R-rated and for adults only, I'm sorry to say. All right, I'm going to let you rant on Cinema Purgatory. I'm not going to rant for long. Cinema Purgatorio 11. There are going to be 18... Fucking issues of 18 this comic fucking book. issues. How are they going to make it 18? Oh, my. I mean, at the very least. So this issue, the feature, the more Kevin O'Neill feature is the Black Dahlia murder, which more does is a musical. Um, it's OK. Again, he's not bringing anything new to this tale. Um Would it, would it be fair to say that it's an exercise as opposed to a fully successful, complete type of story? Yes, it would be fair to say that. Um, it also would be fair to say that it's not a 
very ambitious exercise. It's a very okay. busy one. It's an involved exercise, but it's not incredibly ambitious. Um, okay. You know, we've had some great cinema purgatorios, uh, feature stories from more, but it's been a long time since we've had one. I think it's yeah. been like four issues since we've had a great one, maybe five. And it's when he just, The novelty is running out. The right. novelty might have already run out. because I, mean, I, we, I think 12 would have been fine, but you said there's another six. And that's like, what I heard. Um, that, yeah, that was my problem is that, that I said to myself, well, I like these. I just wish they would just publish them as a 32-page comic and leave the rest of the shit out. You know, I, I mean, that's something. the other thing is, is you know, <clears throat> the back matter, which is everything except Garth Ennis's thing, I would say, because right. – um, even though Ennis can't write a six-page uh, chapter to save his life. Like, okay. This one's an Ennis talking heads issue, but Cassieris is not in sync with Ennis, you know? like he's Ooh, this, that's rough. Yeah, and so he's not in sync with the talking heads thing. And Ennis is a guy who sort of created talking heads with in Preacher, you know, a little bit. He had a lot of great talking heads stuff in that before Bendis came along and sort of took it over. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, and then the back matters. Fluff. Fluff. I mean, the, uh, the civil war one by Max Brooks is, you know, back to him introducing historical characters and relevance. And I'm just like, Oh God, he's so bad at it. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, the art's nice. It's got, um, and get rid of that original shitty artist, I think it was. Oh, yeah. I like what's his face. Um, oh, he's okay. the guy who did the dog book with uh, Ennis. The oh, problem like is, that. yeah, the problem is he can't do black and white. What the fuck are they putting this guy like? Yeah, he's, he needs he, the color. He, you know, he needs the color. His artwork is not developed enough to hold on to black and white. You know, right? it's too um, it's kind of flat. You know, and the color brings it out. You know, the color is the emphasis. You know, he doesn't he doesn't have any lines, right? The guy's a... He's like a graphic, cartoony kind of guy. Yeah, and, you know, he works in... Uh, in this, it was grays, and he didn't have uh, inks, basically. And, you know, in the other book, he has color to, to emphasize. So they brought in the guy who does the vast. I can't remember what his name is. He's technically great. I mean, but he can't do anything with this shit. Like... <laughs> You know, I mean, and it, some it, of the it, problem it, is none of these writers are good for six pages or whatever they get, except more, and more gets like eight or nine pages, right? Yeah. And of course he can do that. That's how he started, you know? He started on 2008. English comics that give you seven or eight pages. Yeah, and I mean, these other guys, they just they just don't have it down, and it's like... It's a weird book. I mean, I can see Avatar publishing. It's probably better than a lot of their books. But after yeah. you get past the Moore and the Ennis stuff, it's just kind of downhill from there. It's mm. like uh, probably a, a, a shade better than heavy metal, but not much. And uh, the fact that they're going to extend it to 18 issues, I, I don't know how can, – can Moore get that much out of tragic cinema stories to make good metaphors for 18 issues? Uh, can – Garth Ennis, like, make Prue an interesting character for 18 issues? I don't I know. Mean, I don't even want to talk about what's happened to Code Prue, because that those two issues, there was so much promise there. Yes. And it went to shit. 
I yeah, mean, even so for the commentary about an ambulance driver that runs into unusual fantasy creatures in no, her. No, no, not not in the in the original one. There were the witches and shit going on. Oh, right? that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Witches. Yeah, I forgot about that. And that's all gone now. And yeah, he'll have a couple cool things where she runs into Frankenstein's monster. This fan or that. He makes part. a relevant point in his seven or eight pages, and that's it. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's it's. Anyway. Now, would, you, would, would it be fair to say Cinema Purgatorio is running out of gas? Cinema Purgatorio has run out of gas. I mean, it, it's, it's it seems to be in some sort of a second wind for uh, more, like he's at least trying again. Uh-huh. Um, but I feel like it's going to be a long seven issues. Well, good luck, because you're a better man than I am for reading it, I tell Well, and you. then what are you going to get out of this? You're going to get a nice fucking collection at the end. Right. That, you know, you're going to have occasionally great feature, uh, chapters, but it's not going to add up. I mean... That's yeah, like a collection of short stories, which some are okay and some are good, you know? Right. Okay. So, it's going to... Yeah, it's just... It's a weird one that um, I don't feel like anybody really thought out. Well, yeah, probably what everybody's getting paid for this work. Why then. didn't they fuck? Fucking new backups with, I mean, Simon Spurrier's been willing to work for Avatar. Get his ass on one of these. Don't do five stories. Do three, you know, whatever. Right, do three and give them 12 pages each or something. All right, so Uh, moving on. Did you read I Hate Fairyland? I have not read the latest issue. I'm sorry to say. I've been too busy. Well, I can't spoil anything, but let's just say it's another fine issue of I Hate Fairyland. Um, How does Scotty keep up the momentum with this one trick pony of Gertrude? I'm, I'm, what does he What does he bring to the table every issue that keeps you bringing coming back? I'm curious. He's fucking funny. Yeah, yeah. He's funny. Um, it's cynical about the fairyland. It's cynical about the idea of. It's cynical about the whole concept of the comic, which is, you know, uh, if you don't know, it's this uh, little girl is supposed to go to, it's like Limo in Dreamland, where she goes to Fairyland and she's supposed to have this wonderful quest and, you know, they bring children there to make them happy and then they send them back to Earth and they've had this wonderful dreamlike quest. Yeah, she fucks it up and she's stuck there for 30 years and she's killing everything and, you know, she's a disaster. Yeah. So... It's just, uh, it ends on uh, the most amazing cliffhanger he's come up with yet. And it's, oh, wow. you know, I don't I don't know if he can get, I don't think he can get 30 issues out of this, but I think he can get another 10. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, his visual style is certainly uh, very attractive and appealing, and he knows yeah. how to do gross. He knows how to do it's, exaggerated characters and everything. It's you like know. Uh, Candyland gore. You know, Candyland Gore. I like that. I like that. So, um, you didn't read War Stories? Yeah, yeah I know. It, it, me and Garth Ennis for go figure. But you, you know, the artwork was always so off-putting in that. And me being an art wink, it's kind of hard when you're an art wink and you see. Well, I'm not going to call him inferior. That's not fair. Um, it's probably the budget that Avatar has for artists. They pick up a lot of really inexpensive East Europeans to do work at probably a. Uh, Tenth of the page rate that Marvel and DC pay their people, and you know they don't have anchors. That was always the big problem with this. Is it's like the Avatars pioneered the digital coloring, doing your inking for you. Okay. So, but that said, War Stories is—I mean, it's War Stories 
It's come back. The four issue arcs, this new one, you know, and I I honestly think Ennis was saving certain because all of the war stories arcs were three issues. Right. For a while. And then he bumped up to four and it sort of saved the book. Well, that's good because he's better when he gets an extra issue. Somehow. Exactly. So I feel like these were, you know, scripts he was saving and he finally just did them. I mean, it's this cool, weird story of uh, British flyers. He's not really um, – he's done British flyers I think twice, maybe three times now in the series. Second American time. flyers at least once, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's working out. It's nice. Um I'm hoping that these get collected in a way that people will get to read them at some point. I mean, the the Garth Ennis war comic um, library is now 17, 18 years long, and it's yeah. gone from multiple through from Vertigo to Dynamite to Avatar, you know, and it's like you're seeing this very interesting progression, and he's finally sort of getting ambitious again and you know it's just it's a it's a really nice book uh this arc is just showing his the calm that ennis can do too you know yeah. and it's just like it's so it's, it's a very nice one I'm, I'm very happy that the book is sort of stabilized and it's building again the artist is developed over the years um i think he commented on on one of our podcasts once saying that you know he was really fixating on the detail of the um, war machines well, versus the characters. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, you got to do both. You gotta that's do the both. thing it's, is, it's you got to do both. Yeah. It's Garth yeah. Ennis. You got to do both. Right. You can't, you know, like... You can't just draw really good planes in combat in the sky. You right. got to do face you gotta expressions. You got to do the face expressions. You got to be able to tell these guys apart. You got to, like... You and when know, they have emotions, I mean, it's all about emotion with Garth Ennis. You know? Right. You know, it's so it's so we've covered this point before because, you know, like war comics are probably the most neglected genre in our in our niche art form. But nobody writes better war stories than Garth Ennis in the modern era. There's just nobody that comes. Nobody even attempts it. And I don't. Well, yes, they do. Those shitbags who relaunch stuff at D.C. for the new 52. Remember that? There was that terrible fucking. There were a couple terrible fucking war comics that came out oh, in yeah. fifty two. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. and um, yeah, those guys sucked. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> I think I even told one of them he sucked on Twitter because he sucked so bad. Like anyway, because I was reading all the first three of all the new fifty two, so I was suffering through some of those. But yeah, but no, I mean it's Garth. Garth is the guy who takes it seriously. Garth takes the history seriously. He understands how to construct a story. And, you know, it's not it, like Max Brooks, who's forcing his fucking si- giant ants into the Civil War. Like, Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a one-trick pony as yeah. opposed to a, a real deep story about human beings that have to deal with life-changing conflicts and situations and all that. So now Deets. we got – sorry. That's one more – well, we got one more for you because I, I – You read didn't the first, fucking read it. I don't like aliens. It's James Stoku. Nobody likes aliens. When's the last time there was a good fucking alien comic? Never. I reread the first alien. I have not read them all. I stopped it at some point. You leave me alone. I've never bought an alien comic from you. Ever. Nope. Nope. You never did. Okay. So it's James Stoku doing an alien comic. And it's 
It's good. I mean, it's not good. It's James Stokoe doing an alien comic. It's gorgeous. A good alien comic. Yeah. It's yeah. as good. Yeah. I mean, like you know, here's this here's this wacky idea. Instead of having you know generic, um, acceptable to uh, general audiences, com- uh, licensed material comic. Let's put James Stokoe on that and let him spice that shit up, and he does, and it's gorgeous. And I'll probably never read it again, but I'd love the original art on my walls. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, what he does, he he pencils, he inks, he colors, he letters all his own stuff. And, uh, you know, we followed James Stokoe, like, on his more fantasy-oriented pursuits. And, uh, you know, like, so you got, you got to like aliens, but at the same time, it's unique aliens, I'm yeah. sure. You know, that's and, I mean, what's cute about it is, is he has... Has a lot of nods to the movies. Oh, does he now? Okay. Yeah, not just like aliens. He has nods to the first one. I think there's an Alien 3 nod. There might even be an Alien Resurrection nod in there. It's just cute. I mean, it gets you by. Um, yeah. Wait, wait, there's some comics that like, okay, they're not uh, they're not created to be Academy Award winners. They're they're enjoyable genre comics. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one of the big things. I mean, I, 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 I try not hard not to come off as like an elitist asshole about comic books because ultimately the majority of people read comics, uh, they read them for entertainment, you know, and, right. and, and, and James Stokoe, even on his worst day can deliver an, an entertaining Marvel or aliens comic, if, right. you know, because he gets involved with it and he understands it. But while we're talking about him real quick, uh, I do need to, um, pipe what that fucking Godzilla book he did was remember that the hundred yeah, year yeah. war, that was a great book. Anyway, yeah. moving on. What was it? The 50-year war, was it? Something-year war. That was yeah, a good book. Like a every train. 10 years, it's the same character. Right? Yeah. It was yeah, really it cool. Old. Yeah. All right, moving on. We've got something. It's Vernon's turn. Did you read Mage? And if you didn't, I forgive you. Because <laughs> it's Matt Wagner. I don't and, read well, Matt Wagner. I grew up... <clears throat> I grew up when... You know, Grendel was, you know, spoken about in hush terms and shit like that, you know, like, and then I finally got around to reading Matt Wagner and I could not fucking figure out why anybody gave a shit about this guy and I still can't. He's a darling uh, indie creator and one could say his talents are competent, okay? I would not say superlative. And his early stuff came at the indie thing, not near the beginning, but at the 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 nadir of the popularity of black and white indies. Even though he did Mage in Color, it was done by Comico, I think, back in the day. And uh, I guess he's finishing up his trilogy now. None of us knew it was a trilogy, by the way. I don't. I don't. I, I ask all my customers, "Did you know that Mage was a trilogy?" None of them had any fucking idea. But. Uh, and I'm not going to try to judge it. I mean, I've read Matt Wagner comics and they're all right. And as an artist, he's certainly competent. He tries, he's got a certain level of skill that goes so far. Okay. He's not a great artist. Uh, but for a dollar 99, oh, well. I, I was entertained by this goofy zero issue that reintroduces the Kevin matchstick character in his place in society. And again, for a dollar ninety nine, believe it or not, I found it an interesting read because the character's older now, mm. and he has to put up with younger avatars. And uh, I don't know if this series will be any good, uh, but I found this strangely as a one and done that anybody could pick it up and enjoy it, especially a mature individual who 
feels slighted by younger people's attitudes in society and stuff like that. And so wait, you're saying it's a comic for grumpy old men like you. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, but again, for $1.99, you know, it's, it's half as price as anything from Marvel or DC, and it still reads better. And any asshole in my store could just pick it up and read it and, and, and enjoy it for $1.99. So I'll give Mage Zero a pass. You know what I mean? So it's fine. I'm not going to say that I'll read the rest of them, but for one <laughs> issue, it was fine. Moving on, we've got Love and Rockets issue two, which is probably another one of mine, right? Because you have still yet to experience the delicate flower that is Love and Rockets. What are you talking and- about? I just want to go back and reread it from the start. I read... You know, I read Locus, I read Palomar, and what? I just want to go back and read, you know, hundreds of issues of Love and Rockets pretending to be read. Yeah, thousands of pages of Love and Rockets. And I'm just, I really want someone to pay me to do that. I think that would be amazing. You know, I think. It is a chore, but it's a, a worthwhile chore. It's a worthwhile chore. I'm just saying, you know, my wife kind of would not understand me giving up everything to do this. I'm sorry, I'm spending two weeks isolated in a room with Love and Rockets. I don't and think you could get them done in two weeks. If you read nonstop, you might. But you couldn't sleep. Couldn't sleep. <laughs> um, I will give it this. I, I'm very um I'm I'm a Love and Rockets super wink. Um the brothers Hernandez are are to be congratulated to doing stories that they want to tell. They have always been true to themselves. They've always been honest about what kind of stories they're telling. They have never let outside influences dictate why or where a story should go. And they still produce a comic or comics that are so heartfelt and real and honest that there is no one that is their equal in comics. I mean, because they do it when – you, when you say a creator – does not do something for money, but for love, that would certainly be the base definition of the Lost Brothers Hernandez because their comics are not commercially successful. They sell the collected editions enough to keep a living out of it, I'm sure. They do all right. They're not poor. But at the same time, you'll never see them cater to trends that will make them more popular or more noticed or anything. Yet their characters are incredibly deep and their plots are vivid and textured and there is no loss of craft in the 30 odd years I've been reading them and while there are high and low points to the characters all the stories are heartfelt and done with a certain amount of zeal and professionalism that is just not equaled in any comics anywhere I mean they will always remain like say in my top three or five creators and their new magazine thing is uh, a continuation of essentially the Love and Rockets volumes. I mean, there's really nothing new on it, except they got a new format. And they're trying to get different things because in this market, it's very hard for them to get noticed. Yeah. I mean, uh, but uh, the stories continue on and the characters, they keep inventing new characters, you know, because their characters age and they reproduce and they meet people in different countries and then they have relationships. And it's like one big novel that just never stops. And uh, I don't know, I, if I had one complaint about the latest issue, and this just could be due to my age, is that uh, on the Beto stories, man, the lettering is so small, okay? <laughs> I, it's, it's do not. The, 
this is magazine sized, and I'm having a hard time reading some of this dialogue. I had to get out a magnifying glass out of the drawer of the desk today because I, I'm when you have to strain to read lettering and it takes long to read, it really ruins the pacing. Yeah. So I, I found a magnifying glass so I could get these balloons done, and it was just I felt like an old man because I, I, my vision isn't bad; I can read just fine. So they, they really Beto should watch that. I mean, he's got, <laughs> he made that lettering just that say too small, you know. But Love and Rockets is an absolutely wonderful exercise in comics. It is extremely mature-oriented and completely complicated and textural, so it is not for a beginning comic book fan. You will not have the patience to go through it. Uh, But that said, still a fucking masterpiece. I'm sorry. Call me a whore, but I'm a Hernandez Brothers whore. All right, speaking of whores that I'm a whore of, Empowered, Adam Warren's uh, strangely irrelevant Black and white story of a uh, super powered individual with lots of self esteem issues. I never thought he would get ten volumes out <laughs> of the fucking character. And I mean, there's basically three protagonists in this book. I shit you not. For for ten volumes of comics, there are three protagonists. There's Amp. There's her boyfriend Thug Boy and her best girlfriend Ninjet. And in this latest volume, uh, Adam Warren does a number of short stories that kind of add up to a general feeling. And for the first time, we actually have a cliffhanger, which is kind of a pain in the ass because he only does one volume a year, maybe. <laughs> uh, so and even even points that out in the book about how everybody's mad. What? A cliffhanger? There's never been a cliffhanger. What the fuck? You know? And Adam Warren's uh, comics are, are very sexual. They're, they can be very violent. But th- again, this could be argued that it is a mainstream superhero comic for adults. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably its best description. And uh, it's very manga influenced. Uh, Warren has a cartoony style, but he doesn't print in color either. And you don't notice it. As a black and white artist, he more than compensates with all the different levels of depth and graphic and overlay and perspective. And, and he just. He just does it. He just does it. He's like one of those comic book creators, uh, not far removed from the Love and Rockets guys, who understands his media. He he speaks in the language that is uniquely his, yet stays within the parameters of being able to read a mainstream comic. But he explores all sorts. And he makes fun of superheroes to the point where you're like, wow, even Vertigo couldn't put a book together this good. Okay. So kudos to Adam. I hope he's making a good uh, living on this, but uh, Empowered Volume 10 is the latest volume in a long series of really fun books. And if you're over 18 and you love superheroes and you could handle sex and death in your, your superhero comics, I highly recommend reading these things. They're so much fun. All right. Another one. My God, I got to talk some more. One more. I know you're not, one more. Go. I, know you're not, I know you're not a Howie Chaykin fan. And I go up with Howie. And it's kind of weird. I got a, a soft spot for him. I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm not 70. I'm not Jewish. I don't have a hard on for the world. But I just, this latest book of his is kind of a escapitulation of all his frustration with society. Okay. And it is a political and social book in the way that his other books which hint at it and utilize it as subject matter, it comes to the forefront. And in this particular book, it deals with terrorism, horrible government presidents, bad CIA, 
terrorists from every different walk of life who all have different motives about what they're doing. And it puts him in this grand story of a failed FBI guy who fucks up royally in predicting the assassination of a president and has to live with it and starts putting together a band of psychopathic terrorists to, to, to work on this story. Now, he also has a couple of really talented people on this book. Jesus Abertov, who does the coloring, and old man Ken Bruzenek. You might remember him as being a letter from American Flag. And they just do the most absolute wonderful job on this book, giving it a level of complexity that is just not available in most American comic books. In the back matter, it is fascinating. In the first issue, they talk about why they make aesthetic things like the logo. And I, I maybe I'm a wank in comics, but I just love their three-paragraph explanation of why they made the logo the right. way they did. And in the second issue, Howard Chaikin goes on a, not a rant, but an explanation about who he is and why he does these things. And then they start the letters page for one. And Howard makes it a point to make sure that he doesn't read the letters. He tells people, I don't read the letters. I don't want to be influenced by t people telling me what I should do or what they hate because I don't give a shit. I'm telling this story, and I don't care whether you like it or not. <laughs> and I am just kind of enthralled. It's very violent. It's very sexual. It is a nice story for a 70-year-old creator to be doing. And, yeah. uh, and it's not for everyone because it's really in your face but he doesn't make – he makes – it's kind of weird because he balances between making judgment calls on politics and yet letting you either be insulted or complimented with your viewpoints. It doesn't matter to Howard. He's just presenting this story that's very offensive. And uh, the way it takes on today's society is just really hard to handle. I mean it, it is the perfect book for the Trump era. I'm telling you. I, I, it's very political. It's very social. And Trump's not in it, and there's no character that's like him in it. But it segs beautifully with the way people feel about politics and society and their frustration with it and all these different viewpoints that collide. And uh, it's a very controversial book. A lot of people are going to hate it. But in the words of Howard Chaikin, I don't care. I want to read it. <laughs> so don't miss this one, kids. And now we're gonna <clears throat> we're gonna close up with one that we both read, um, but we forgot to put on the list, so we're we're doing it last. Uh, came out this week, Met Cadet U, which is from uh, Greg Pak, who worked at Marvel, I think. Um, he did the uh, World War Hulk and Planet Hulk stories. And uh, the artist, who's the artist? Uh, Takeshi Miyazawa. And I'm hard-pressed to remember what this person has done before. I think something, but yeah, I... I was it Runaways? Maybe. May, I thought it was a, that was a female. Weapon art. X, maybe? Maybe, I'm not or sure. X-23, I don't know. But for whatever reason, we gave it a shot. Um, it's got nice it's modern. art. Huh? The art's yeah. nice, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting in the fact that I, I think that... I'm not sure I'm the audience for the book, you know. I mean, it's it's perfectly crafted about a young boy who takes over a robot by accident or chooses him yeah. or something like that. And um, it follows in the basic Japanese anime manga patterns of, you know, uh, class differences, yeah. uh, you know. And I, I think that um, 
I'm not sure whether Greg Pak can up the ante enough to keep me interested in the book. That's kind of my issue. Yeah. It's it's a simple premise, and I think it's better off for younger readers, perhaps. I don't know. You were saying that there's some pushy stuff that that might not work for kids. And I'm I'm saying older kids, perhaps. Late-grade schoolers might like it more. I'm not sure. I don't, yeah, maybe. I. It's it's weird, also in the sense that it um, it's set in the U.S., but all of the characters are Asian, and there's some it, anti, uh, the protagonist and his mother are janitorial staff at the cadet school um where they train to 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 be accepted by giant robots right from space yeah and um it opens with them speaking cantonese and this girl which is also a weird thing that there's the girl bully i know that fits into the anime thing yeah but it's sort of I don't know. It just, it strikes me as, you know, we don't need another book from 1987, right? Yeah. Like, it's dated. It's very dated in a way that, you know, it feels like a dubbed uh, anime, basically. Right, right. That may be the audience to go for. I'm not sure that audience exists anymore. I'm not really sure. Unless you bring something new to the table. Right. Strangely enough, like we were talking before the podcast. That I was more engaged with Robotech, which also debuted this week. Uh, when I was a night crew chief in my school years, we used to get up at 7.30. Well, we used to get off work at 7 and grab a case of beer and go watch 7.30 in the morning reruns on the Spanish-speaking channel, which didn't speak Spanish during the day too much. And they had Robotech reruns at 7. And it was that's a good soap opera. And I found that Robotech was much more sophisticated, had more characters and better executed this type of book. So if you put the two together, I hate to say it, uh, this is one case where I'd rather read Robotech, which is a licensed uh, yeah. licensed thing, you know? Uh, much in the same way Aliens is a good licensed book by Stoko. You get good people on licensed material and yeah. it work. And I don't want to cut down Greg Pak or, you know, Takeshi, but yeah. I think that the Robotech was the better book. If you're, if, let's put it this way: if you're in the mood for a nostalgic '80s uh, anime robot comic, I, I'd go for Robotech anyway. Maybe yeah. it's more, more filled you know, out. I feel like um, Boom has been really was really impressive over the last three years, and we're sort of in a point where they haven't had any breakouts. Despite you know, putting out a lot of good stuff, yeah. Despite putting out a lot of good stuff, there hasn't been a Spire this year. No. Um, and Spider, I don't know if Spider was commercially successful. I mean, if you're talking well, about... Well, even artistically successful. Okay. I'm going with that, that yeah. Boom has not had that breakout. You know, for a second, we thought Kong Skull Island was going to be fucking awesome, and then it just fell to shit, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to do six. It's selling well enough. We'll do 12. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, it's just... it's. Uh, it's nice that they're able to keep up the level of uh, production value, but right. yeah. we're just they, they not. They still need to crank it up to eight or nine. Let's put it that way. They need yeah. to get to eight or nine. Yeah. But uh, actually all of these books were worth reading that we, that we covered about yeah. today. They're all, they're all much more uh, greatly executed than Marvel and DC stuff these days. I, I mean, 
maybe it's my age, but I just I can't read too much Marvel and DC. There's just nothing there for me anymore. You know, they're they're not talking to me anymore. Whereas all the books that we talked about today would at least interest me enough to pick them up and read them mm-hmm. at the very least. You know. Well, let's see. Let's cover some quick trade paperbacks that came out since all the right. last time we talked. Um, let's see. We have that. I got to get the credits here. Ether number one. Volume one. Now you were a mixed bag on this when you read the first series, and you weren't. Well, in- I don't even think I finished the first series. It's got beautiful art from David Rubin, who wrote yeah. that fucking book. Uh, I didn't love it. I thought it was good enough for me to get engaged into it, and I'll keep reading it. And I think the the main character is kind of tragic and interesting. Uh, again, nothing new under the moon. Matt Kent is establishing himself to me as a writer that knows how to pick certain things up and include them and in, in, um, how would you say it? Take stereotypical elements and weave them into a story that is readable at the very least. Like, like Black Hammer, I say there's nothing new under the moon about Black Hammer, but the execution of it is enough for it to keep you going. Whereas Ether it relies on your love of fantasy, I think, more than anything else about a detective on Earth. I, I should say an Earth Explorer that finds oh, a that's fantasy. Right. It's the Adam Strange book. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, he goes right. Exactly, mm-hmm. he goes to another fantasy universe and he, he finds a position as kind of a solver of murders and mysteries and stuff. And he's like not a policeman, but he's uh, just somebody who gets involved in it. And well, you know, it, it becomes right. It's Adam Strange essentially because he marries a woman and brings her back to Earth, and they have a child, which Adam Strange never did, by the way. Whatever. It's yeah, the same whatever. fucking concept. Well, it's 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 saved by the fantasy art of David Rubin right. who brings it in there. And um, you know, the trade paperback is especially nice because it reprints the first arc and then all the back matter in the trade Ooh. are all of David's uh, uh preparatory drawings and color selections and That's cool and, and alternative covers that never right. seen. Nice. And it's a nice package. I mean it's not a perfect book, but it's a perfectly decent read for someone who doesn't have real disciplined fantasy needs. You know, like, let's put it that way. I, I liked it for that element. All right, Knight's Dominion. You read Knight's Dominion. That was We had some fun, but it was not Ted Knife's best effort. It was strongly in need of an editor, as I remember correctly. Because it almost fell off the rails by the third issue out of six or seven i think it was yeah it's coming back next week right uh that is correct yeah he's gonna do a volume two beginning right, volume two. that see. knife is really productive he's got another book called heroines out there and uh you know ted knife i guess is working overtime um i don't know next dominion if you're into sword and sorcery and uh what's that silly game uh, what's the role-playing game dungeons and dragons, dungeons and dragons. Yeah, it takes all those idioms and puts them together in a book. And uh, Ted is a very competent storyteller. And like I say, the book has its narrative problems. But he manages to pull it together at the end. At the end, yeah. Yeah, and and that saves it, I think. Um, The biggest problem is he has an editorial problem, like in issue two or three, where you really, you're like, what the fuck's happening? You know, I, I understand. Many, that, yeah, there's just way too many characters. It might read better in a single sitting. It might. And and, and Ted <clears throat> Nypha, it, it, the book demands some grand scenes, okay? Mm. And he just doesn't have the chops for them. He's more of an intimate storyteller dealing with quiet, passionate moments mm. than he is big 
crowd scenes with armies fighting one another and dragons. It's not his forte right. because when you look at the double page spreads, they're really lacking in spectacularness. Although they're competent, and I'll give Ted kudos for trying to work in a medium that might sell. Okay, um, I don't know. There there are worse books than Knight's Dominion, and the fact that it's on nice paper and the characters are kind of nice and and warm and stuff. And I think it's a good book for people who aren't too demanding of such things. Let's put it right. that way. Anyway. New Superman. Have you had a chance to sample no, that? No, I all? haven't read New Superman yet. Well, I don't normally re- recommend I DC books. You know, I know, I know, I know. I I'm not bitching at you. I mean, the people who listen to podcasts might get a kick out of it, though. I don't know. I, I'm going to get a kick. I'm going to read it. It's re- I'm ready to read it. I just need the time to dedicate to... Anyway... <sighs> New Superman, uh, DC's probably their most enjoyable book these days, um, other than the Flintstones. And uh, I, I, I'm lamenting the fact that the Flintstones are gone, you know. But uh, we still have New Superman anyway. And uh, this book about an imitation Chinese Superman, about a political power group that's trying to compete for power against another faction of Chinese government officials by inventing yet their own version of the Justice League. The absurdities in this book are really brought to the forefront by Gene Yuen Lang, who's a, a really good indie writer and has, has covered a lot of good stuff. And he brings a real different approach to mainstream comics. But you know what? At the same time, they're technically proficient, and he does a great job writing it, and it all ties together. I mean, in the beginning of the first volume, the protagonist is shown to be a bit of a schmuck who gets in over his head, and he's brought into this experiment that turns him into the new Chinese Superman. And he finds out that there's also a Chinese Wonder Woman and a Chinese Batman, who is a very overweight guy, not unlike myself. And I love the jokes about him. It's hilarious. How the hell can he fit into that Batmobile? You know, that's stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, he has a couple of really good artists, Victor Bogdanovic. I think he used to work on Superman years ago. I'm not sure. And inked by Richard Friend. And it's a really enjoyable hoot. And uh, I'm just wondering why DC doesn't publish more ideas like this. I mean, because I'm bored the fuck out of most of their superheroes. Why not give a writers a chance to do alternative versions of their characters again? You know, that's what's missing about DC is that they're not giving their creators opportunities to do personalized versions mm-hmm. of these superheroes, you know? And uh, it, it, when we talk about reboots, this is something one of my customers mentioned the other day that I that we haven't mentioned on the podcast um, the the word reboot is a very common thing nowadays in comic books, especially about Marvel and DC, because every two to three years they have a need to reboot so they can like restart their characters again. And do you know who is the who did the best reboot in the in the last few years? Archie. Archie turned it completely around by eschewing everything about their old stuff and embracing these independent writers and artists who come in with a fresh appeal. And make the characters interesting again. They don't look anything at all like they used to. They don't talk or act anything well. I guess, well, they kind of do. This is Archie. But they're given a little bit of leeway on the leash. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about a reboot, a company-wide reboot, I'd have to say Archie is the best example of how to do a reboot. And uh, take them for an example, uh, Marvel and DC, when you're looking for what to do with your library. Quick question about that. Is there continuity between the new Archie book and the new Jughead book, or are they separate? Are you talking about the mainstream Archies? Yeah. 
Like um, Mark Wade, Archie, and then oh yeah, they're, they all exist in the same universe. Yeah, yeah. There's <clears> one book that's a side called Riverdale, which kind of pays attention to the TV show more. Okay, but yeah, their their universe is all shared, other than the horror books. Other so, than the horror books, right? They okay. got the horror books. They got the what about stuff. Betty and Veronica? The shitty Betty and Veronica, Adam. Hughes yeah, book. that's still shitty. Adam Hughes actually got to three issues. I'm like, oh my god! But after that horrible first one, I couldn't bring myself yeah. to read the second. No. I think that that's an uh, an outlier. Um, Adam Strange or Adam Strange, Adam Hughes, uh, is just playing with his dick. I think that's what Betty and Veronica's about, you know, because he certainly isn't doing it for the money because Archie doesn't pay a shitload, right? You know? But that said, uh, Archie books are so much more enjoyable, and having youthful, independent people on them has really helped them a lot. Yeah. And that's it for comics, man. So read them fucking comics, man. Yeah, we got some good um, ones. We did. Um, media summer's off. No TV shows right now. I'm no binge TV watching shows. Defenders. Defenders starts at the end of the month, so hopefully we'll be able to talk about that next episode. Heard anything about the Defenders at all? Any advanced? Heard thing? it. Uh, it's from the same showrunner, a guy named Scott Buck, who did Iron Fist, but it doesn't suck supposedly like Iron Fist. Oh, thank Though I Lord. did read a review of um, the Inhumans. Oh my. Which uh, Scott Buck also did, and the person said, I actually liked Iron Fist, and this is the worst fucking thing Scott Buck has ever done. It's terrible. So there you go. That's something for everybody to look forward to. Could could anybody imagine the Inhumans being good as a television show? I I, I don't I don't get what the why does Marvel insist on pushing the Inhumans at us? I They're like mutants, only they own them, Vernon. Yeah, I guess that's a good reason. Yeah, yeah, they're they're like mutants, but they're not, and they're royalty, which the X Men are not, and they're aliens from another other planet, which the X Men are not. So, I guess I what, what does that mean? Like, you, okay, you, you you want to siphon off the pos the, the popularity of the X Men, so you bring this like third rate group of characters that were never really developed that much to begin with have nothing in common with what it is they're trying to replace, and yet they seem to want to push it to make it popular. And I'm just like, how do you do Medusa on a one-hour weekly show with a CGI budget of like 50 cents? I, I don't get it. How is How are they going to do... What the fuck is the name of their dog? Lockjaw. Lockjaw. Apparently Lockjaw. that's the only thing that's okay. The huge pig, the huge pug dog with the tuning fork glued to his head. Uh, how is Black Bolt going to be done? I, I I have not seen any pictures of this. I have no interest because it's going to scare me off. Uh, you know how, how is it going to look? I mean, costumes look bad on television anyway, and the Inhumans were all about costumes. I mean, how do you do a guy like Gorgon who has hooves for feet? Uh, how do you go do a guy like Triton who's an underwater fish like character with scales? You know, I I just I'm not getting it. You know, and I'm just afraid that I never will. I don't know, you know. Um, the only other news is they have announced um, the CW crossover will be, it sounds like, mid-November. Okay. And is that going to include, like, all their shows again? All their perhaps? shows again. Oh, wow. What did they say? They were going to introduce a Muslim character into DC's... Uh... Legends of Tomorrow as a yeah. direct response to the fact that Trump's a fucking bigot. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so that's kind of cool. 
Yeah, that's kind of cool. That would be good. At least at least we can find some positive thing to talk about with Mr. Trump anyway. Mm. Hey, he influenced comics in a good way this year. He came mm. up with a couple of good ones, you know. People hate him so much they were inspired to write good comics. Yeah. He'll figure. Or good shows, excuse good me. shows. So, yeah. yeah. So we won't have to wait too long for that once they come back in October. So, you know, we still got to wait two and, a half, two and a half fucking months for the shows to come back. But then yeah. the crossover is going to be okay. pretty early on. Yeah, the CWA started a little later than the other shows. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what I was watching NBC for some reason the other night, baseball game or something. And <laughs> my God, they're bringing back Will and Grace again. I'm like, if there was ever a show that ended and needed to end, it was Will and Grace. I was a fan of the show and I watched it all the years. I liked it. It had an absolutely horrible ending show like all of these shows do. You know, they go in, they go in the future. I'm like, and they talk about their kids and stuff. And I'm like, Okay, this is like the Seinfeld show or whatever the hell it was when it had that horrible last episode. You know, it was very similar to me. And I'm like, they're going to – is it the fact that no one has any ideas and none of these actors are working right now that they want to bring this back? Pretty much. Pretty much. you know. I don't know. Maybe they can make magic. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, as superheroes, uh, we have yet to see – Anybody besides uh, the Disney-owned ABC or the DC-owned WB, or actually DC doesn't own WB, but they kind of do as far as superheroes are concerned. But we haven't heard anything new. Are they just going to rest on their laurels? I'm not sure. You know, you think that with a new season, we'd see at least a couple of new concepts. Did I hear something about Black Lightning? Black Lightning's coming in in January, February. Runaways starts on Hulu this fall. Okay, fingers good. crossed. That, that's something yeah. that's that's something we've been wondering about for like a million years since Disney yep. bought Marvel. Mm-hmm. And Bl- Cloak and Dagger starts next year. Ooh, okay. That that could work for television. Mm-hmm. I didn't care for it as a comic, but it could work as television. Yep. Yeah. So, in the meantime, I'll just keep binge watching Venture Brothers. I guess I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, and then what? That's- Sci-fi is going to do that Krypton series, but who gives a shit? Like, sorry. Well, what was that one that uh, wasn't HBO? FX did uh, Legion. Legion will be back next okay. year. I'm not sure. I, I'd like to. I should probably binge watch that. I really missed that, and I shouldn't have. And people told me that it's very hard to get past the first couple episodes because it goes back and it's kind of like Grant Morrison for television, back and forth, non-narrative, sequential stuff, you know. And you're not sure whether it's in his head or reality. But uh, several of my customers said that it was worth the time. So I should probably binge watch that anyway. There you go. And, and movies to capitulate. Uh, what do we got? Justice League versus Thor. Well, it's a no-brainer. Thor's going to win just for hitting action with the Hulk. I mean, I think the Thor Ragnarok trailer probably is going to be a lot more interesting than the whole Justice League movie. But we'll see. I mean, yeah. If the Thor movie delivers what that trailer promises... Damn, you know, masters yeah. of the universe, but fucking awesome. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they yeah, and, and and sadly enough, those are old Greg Pak comics. He wrote all. He wrote that whole storyline yeah. back in the day. So. so he's getting no money for it. Um, is that yeah. it for the fall? There's I, Thor and Justice League. That's it. Yeah, they're the holiday films. I, I thought it was interesting that Josh Whedon had to work under some incredibly tight deadlines. Uh, what was it when uh, Zack Snyder took himself out of the project? Yeah. And then Disney like said, hey, you know, Josh, nah, want to come well, in and WB, rescue this. WB. 
Oh, Warner excuse Brothers. me. Yeah. Warner Brothers. And I was like, hey, uh, he's doing an awful lot. And the thing is slotted to debut in November. I mean, aren't you supposed to be done with all that shit by now? You know I what? Th- Think about it like this. They had Superman versus Batman Superman in the can for a year before they released it. That's and they didn't that... fix a single fucking thing wrong with it. Yeah. So yeah. you know what? Maybe Joss Whedon coming in and, you know. What's maybe... interesting that he worked on Marvel's Avengers films. I assume yeah. that's why he got the job is they okay. figured he could make it palatable, palatable. to yeah. mainstream audiences. Because I imagine that the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League is just more the same of Batman Superman, but probably even worse because he's got four characters to or five characters to fuck up, not just two. Okay. Now, what was there? There was, there was something about is, is Henry Cavill, is he going to be doing the Superman in there? And there was something about him being contractually obligated to something else before the reshoots. And some about what facial hair? Yep. That he he's got a mustache. He's got a big old cheesy mustache for Mission Impossible Six. So there are people whose job it is to just take that off of his face and every frame that he reshoots. Because Paramount said, "No, you can't. You can't. He won't shave. He can't shave. He can't shave. Can't shave." <clears throat> wow. You think they would have just dropped him a buck or something and say, "Let him shave. He can grow a mustache back in two to three weeks." Or they could apply a prosthesis. You would think that a CGI mustache would be easier to add than to remove a real Oh, yeah. One. It's always right. easier to add shit than it is to take it out. So, yeah. So, we'll see. We'll see how this all plays out. I'm, uh... A lot of people were impressed with the San Diego Justice League trailer, but no. Yeah, that's all a bunch of fanboys in San Diego, yeah. I'm yeah. just like, nah, I don't I don't I don't see any improvement over what we saw before, you know? Yeah, I think we'd be lucky to get something that is possibly watchable. I think that would be the best thing you could say about the Justice mm-hmm. League movie at this point. You know, I have I have zero optimism about the film. I mean, every trailer I've seen looks horrible. The characters, I, I, I think the only thing I want to watch in Justice League is, is Aquaman. He's the only one that comes off as cool. I mean, Jason Momoa is Aquaman. It's a radical interpretation of mm. Aquaman. And, you know, he might save the film, you know. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll right. See. Hopefully. Well, yeah, well, there you go. Well, we, 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 we've uh, covered everything we can on this slow summer of comics and TV and movies and uh Hope there's enough uh, as we get into the fall season to start talking about the – well, we won't be talking about TV shows next episode. So hopefully – Defenders. Good... We'll be talking about Defenders. Oh, that starts what, next week? August or the week 18th. After? All right. Good, good. Well, that will be uh, a tip thing so we can touch upon next time, Ron. Yeah. Fingers crossed Punisher comes out this year too. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that completely. Yeah. yeah. Get some get some platform shoes for homie and he'll be tall enough to be the Punisher. <laughs> Alright everybody. Well, we'll be back next month. I guess we can safely say that now. So yeah, I think so, yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, read some comics. If you uh if you're gonna buy every single thing we talked about, I think uh the easiest thing to give a pass to is uh, Cinema Purgatorio. You can wait for Easy. the trade. Yeah. Uh but everything else, yeah, give it a give it a shot. Um I don't think anything we read today was below a five. No. I'll- 
other than cinema purgatorio and you have to give it a and five that's still a five because, it's still a five yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah and, so no. and most of it was good yeah i think yeah. so so get in there talk to your comic book dealer say you listen to this crazy podcast and you're looking for these books and screw marvel and dc yeah yeah all right well hey have a wonderful uh, end of summer for all of you you get a couple of weeks left before school starts and uh, what did Judge Jed Dredge say? Uh, be pure, be good, be vigilant. I think that was his catchphrase, something to that effect. I forget. Not I read so many movie. Judge Dredge yeah. But uh, be good to all you. We love you all. And uh, let's see, Andrew can be found at? Comicsfondle.com. And I can be found at, uh, well, I can find, be found at my store, but you can email me at comicsgallery at gmail. And also, um, we try to keep active on the shop's Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash the comics gallery with an X in yes. comics. And although and, Andrew and I have a, sometimes we have uh, lapses in putting up new material, we try to get it up there. But, yep. uh, you know, it still remains one of the most relevant comic sites on the web, strangely enough. I mean, if we did reviews for comics on there, it would be totally relevant because there are no good review sites of comic books uh, on the <laughs> web right now, you know? So, hey, listen to us and smile. We Aww. Love you all. Aww. 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 All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.